And that brings us to today's story, which is the story of Esther. But before we move on, I've got to make a clarification in the bulletin. Um, I, I picked up this morning, I read it, and it said, uh, The Queen of Beauty and Courage, Keith Byler, Youth Pastor. <laughs> so I'd like to bring a little bit of clarification here, just for communication purposes. It, if you have a pen, just go ahead and write this. Write sermon title, The Queen of Beauty and Courage. And then presented by Keith Byler, a youth pastor. Now that's got a clearer message there, just in case you were getting a little confused. Anyways, so the book of Esther. Uh, the author is unknown, which isn't too uncommon. There's a lot of books in the Old Testament that we don't know the author to. Um, but there are certain elements of this book that have troubled Christians in the past. Uh, for, one, or for one, the book of Esther doesn't ever mention the, the name God one time. Uh, it doesn't en- uh, ever mention, like, angels or any kind of divine intervention. It's just kind of, it's out there. Uh, no other book talks about the book of Esther. No, no Old or New Testament ever refers back to Esther. It's just kind of, it's kind of there. and never mentions God. Uh, it seems to promote festivals rather than the law of Moses. All the rest of the Old Testament really promotes the law that God gave to Moses, but for some reason, Esther, the book of Esther doesn't. It, uh, it, it talks more and promotes more about festivals. Uh, there's also this theme of revenge in the story that makes some Christians very uncomfortable. We don't have a lot of old commentaries from our forefathers on the book of Esther. I think it's for those reasons I just talked about. Our forefathers didn't know what to do with the book. A lot of them actually just avoided it. And that's why we don't have a lot of uh, commentaries on that book um, even as late as the Reformation, Martin Luther, he was, he was confused what to do with the book. In fact, he criticized the book, saying that it has no gospel content, and basically question, questioning whether it should be a part of the Bible. However, it was recognized as a part of Scripture well before Jesus walked the earth. And he never condemned the book of Esther. So my confidence is that Esther needs to be a part of the Old Testament. It should be there. It wasn't a mistake Jesus accepted, I think if Jesus accepted it, I think I will, I'll accept it also. And we know that from 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's used for teaching and correction and training and righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. So I think it's very important that we talk about this, because somehow the book of Esther has something in there for all of us to equip us to do the work that God has called us to do. So would you turn with me, get your... Uh, Bible out, your, your iPad out, your smartphone, whatever you use, and let's turn to Esther chapter 1, verse 1. The first verse opens up by saying this happens during the time of Xerxes. Now, don't get confused if you're reading a translation and it says uh, Hazarus uh, instead of Xerxes, it, the same guy, it's, it's not a contradiction. Hazarus is the Persian name of Xerxes. Xerxes is the Greek name of this, of this king. So I'm going to use Xerxes because it just sounds cooler than Hazarus. Um, so uh, Xerxes is this incredibly rich guy. I can't overemphasize this. In fact, the first nine verses of Esther talks about this guy Xerxes. I mean, he, Bill Gates 
And his company and his income is like a yard sale lemonade stand compared to Xerxes. I mean, this guy is loaded. He's rich. Xerxes could pay off our national debt simply by just giving us his wine budget for a week. I mean, this guy is loaded. He, he was so rich, he actually had two castles just in case one blew a tire. I don't know. I mean, he, he had two just because he needed, in case he needed a replacement. He was, he was like a god to the people. When he stood and he talked, like, I mean, everyone just kind of wiltered away and bowed at his feet. His father, Darius, gave him the throne. So we know that Xerxes really didn't work a day in his life. He was as spoiled as could be. And whatever he wanted and whatever he could think of, he got it. He had over 10,000 bodyguards, personal bodyguards. And according to, and don't be weirded out by this, but, but according to uh, documents, he was supposed to be a very handsome young man. He was supposed to be tall and have dark skin and dark hair. And I, I guess according to whoever was writing that, that was handsome. Um, and, you know, my definition of handsome is tall and a little whiter and chubbier. But, but you know, you can, you can go with what you want. But that's what, the, that's what the historical documents say about Xerxes. His armies were huge. Uh, take a, let's, let's take a look. Leave. I want you to pop this up here. Let's take a look at what he was ruling at the time. That's his empire right there during the time of Esther. I mean, he just dominated. He, just, he, was, he, was, basically, he was basically dominating the world, um, at least the active world at that time. And the way he would rule is he would go with his armies and he would scare everybody and take over. And then what he would do, because if you notice what he's ruling, there's a lot of different uh, languages and people groups. And how he would rule is he wouldn't destroy their rulers. He would win their rulers over to follow him. Then he'd have to learn the language. He'd have to know the people. He just basically would rule the rulers. And the way he did this is he would lavish his wealth on them. He didn't use the scare technique, even though everybody was scared of him. He used the glory and power technique. So basically, he'd have these parties. And this is where Esther opens up. It's one of these parties that he's inviting all the governors, all the rulers in his, his kingdom to come and to just enjoy his wealth, his big party. Now, you've got to get a picture of this party, okay? We're talking an estimated about 15,000 governors and rulers. 180 days party for 15,000 some people. Now, he didn't just house them, give them beds. He went further than that. This party was open bar. 180 days of open bar. All he could drink, not just any wine, but the king's wine. I mean, there's wine, and then there's the king's wine. All right, so 180 days, open bar, all the, all the wine of the king you could drink. And then it didn't stop there. 180 days of open buffet, all you can eat, the king's food, the best of the best of the best food. And didn't stop there. When he invited these rulers, he said, come out for 100 days of party with me, six months of partying with me. And uh, I'll also open up my harem. Now, the king's harem was this, he had built, each castle had it. It was this whole, like, wing of the castle that was just for his concubines, just for his women that he employed. He was a very immoral man, uh, very sick and twisted. And he had lots of concubines and he had lots of employed women. And he said, all right, guys, come out for 180 days of free party. All you can drink, all you can eat, and all the women you ever wanted. And all these guys, he would come out. And for six months, party. But anyways, and it's not good, it's not good what's happening. Can you imagine 180 days of open bar? All you can eat? 
All the women you wanted? I mean, this is, this is a massive party. So uh, if that wasn't enough, the king also said, hey, once 180 days are over, I'm going to open it up for a week to the general public. Everybody quit work for a week. Everybody stop. Just come over to my place for seven days and join the open bar, open buffet, open women party. That's how he won his loyalty. He was so incredibly wealthy. Can you imagine? You guys, you women out there who host parties, you know what, how much it costs to have JC's family over for a party, right? I mean, and we're talking, <laughs> we're talking 15,000 people for 180 days. I mean, this is massively wealth. If, if purple, back then purple was a big deal. If you had purple, that meant that you were extreme royalty because it was a really hard dye to find, all right? So what happened is he didn't just dress himself in purple like normal people would have who were rich. Everybody's like, ooh, he's wearing purple. He's rich. No, he decided to make all his curtains for every castle he had. All of his curtains were purple. Uh, his rods, I don't know, let's make curtain rods out of gold. His cups, uh, let's make them out of gold. I mean, the guys who are drinking out of the gold cup, he's like, this is, more, this, this is more than I'll make my whole life, and I'm drinking out of it. It was an incredibly rich guy. His floor, no carpet. No, let's just put uh, precious jewels down. You know, kind of put precious jewels everywhere and lay them out flat. Yep, you can be walking on rubies and diamonds and stuff like that. That'll be my floor. You got, you got to get the picture here. This guy was incredibly rich and lavished his wealth out. So it makes sense with all the party going on and that Queen Vasti, his, his queen, decided, I'm going to do my own party over here in another wing of the castle with the women because there's too much immorality here for us to be around. So Vashti is having her own little party with the women and uh, the king in his drunkenness, and he's, he's wasted, and he's saying, well, let's, let's get my queen Vashti out here, and she'll show off her beauty to all of you guys. And she's a beautiful queen. You've got to check her out. So he calls her out. Uh, Vashti refuses to go. She's like, I'm not going out there to show off my beauty to a bunch of drunk guys, which is bad, because you never say no to the king. So what the king did is he got upset, angry, fired her as queen. Because you don't, you don't disobey Xerxes. I mean, he is the boss. He is the man. He owns and rules the world. So he sends Vashti away, and uh, Xerxes then makes a decree, because he's mad, that he said, if, there, if every man who has a woman, he is the master of that home, and that woman had better do every little thing down to the dot of what he says. I don't care if this guy's a slave or this guy's a king. If you're his wife, you must obey him. Just extremely twisted. I'm very much a control freak. Remember, he's spoiled out of his mind. So the next uh, queen he chooses, or for his next queen, he chooses to gather all these beautiful virgins from, his, from the areas he ruled, and they would come into his harem and, and be beautified and then be presented to him, and he was going to try to pick out the most beautiful girl for his next queen. This is where a guy named Mordecai enters the scene. Uh, turn with me to Esther chapter 2, verse 7. It's talking about Mordecai here. Uh, it says, he brings up Hadassah, and that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had ne neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict was proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, in the, in the citadel in custody of Hegi, Esther was also taken from the king's palace and put into the custody of Hagi, who had charge of the women. 
Verse 9, the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with the cosmetics and portions of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Esther gets moved into this wing of the castle where they're going to beautify her. Now check this out. These women had these beauty treatments before Xerxes could lay eyes. Like he was so important that in order for a woman to, a woman to be seen by Xerxes, he, they had to look uh, beautiful to a certain degree. And this, and this process took 12 months Okay, men, you think that your wife takes a long time in the bathroom getting ready in the morning, all right, to make herself beautified for the day, right? But we're talking 12 months of nothing but beauty treatments. And then, then, then you could be appropriate for Xerxes. So what happened? One by one, each one of these virgins would come and spend a night with Xerxes, and he would decide whether this woman was good enough for him to be the next queen, or if she would just become another one of his concubines, and he would send her off to a harem. So Esther's turn came to step before the king. Ladies, can you imagine the, the pressure? Can you imagine the, how scared she must have been to walk before Xerxes? The Xerxes? After 12 months of being treated for beauty? He's an abusive, spoiled king, and you'd have to go and lay with him? Esther must have been scared out of her mind. And I imagine she was calling out to God and she was pleading for deliverance from this night. But God had a plan for Esther that Esther didn't know about yet. All she knew was that the next thing, she, the next thing was going on was a crown was being placed on her head. And this king was just beaming at her beauty and saying, you are the most beautiful woman I have ever seen. Esther's beauty and grace had won the hearts of many people before that. And today it won the heart of the king. And he was totally smitten by her. In fact, he was so excited that he held this feast that went over the whole kingdom. Said, everyone needs to celebrate this festival of Esther. I found my queen. He said, to celebrate what we're going to do is we're going to have give tax breaks to everybody. And I'm going to generously give everybody a royal gift. I wish Obama would celebrate that way. <laughs> but something could happen to Obama. He's, all right, for the month of June, there's no sales tax. And you just get $2,000 in your accounts. That would be kind of fun, but that's, that's not going to happen. Now, uh, Mordecai was hanging around the castle gates a lot because he wanted to be close to Esther. He knew she got accepted as, as queen, and so she's, he's hanging around. One day when he's hanging around the gates, he hears these two guards of the king talking about their assassin plan to take out Xerxes. So Mordecai tells Esther, who then tells the king that she heard from Mordecai that these two guards were going to assassinate him. The king does some... Uh, Research on it, hangs the two guards, and then like everything else, it was written into the records, uh, the king's records. So then the king, um, time moves on, and I'm jumping over some stuff here. You're going to have to read the story this week. I'm jumping over some stuff. But then the king brings in this new right-hand man named Haman the Agite. Well, everyone was bowing to Haman because he's Xerxes, the right-hand man. So they're bowing to him and giving him gifts, except for Mordecai. And now Mordecai's right at the gate. So he's passing... Haman and Mordecai are passing each other a lot. And Mordecai is not showing him any of the respect that Haman thought he was due. And so Mordecai gets very mad at Haman. And Haman explains that he's a Jew. He doesn't bow or, uh, to anyone or anything. 
uh, but Haman gets really mad at Mordecai. And he starts plotting how he's going to take out not just Mordecai, but through all the Jews together and just uh, get, get rid of them in Xerxes' kingdom. Now I asked the question, I was like, wait a minute. Why is Haman such a, has such a beef against the Jews, especially Mordecai? Like, okay, so they don't bow to him. There's plenty of people in the kingdom. Why does he have such a beef, a beef with them? And, and then we start getting, and as I was reading, I start getting a hint here of why Haman is so mad at Mordecai. Um, it mentions five times in the book of Esther. When you read it this week, check it out. That it says, Haman the Agite. And then later on, Haman the Agite. Haman the Agite. Haman the Agite. And so if it mentions that many times, obviously it has to be important. Uh, and uh, this is a great example why the story, the series we're going through is so important. Because all these characters um, play into each other from previous stories. So Haman the Agite. If you remember when we were studying David and Saul, Saul, when he was king, he destroyed the Agites. Now Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. So Haman is not just ticked off that they're not bowing to him. It's reminding him of what the Jews did to the Agite people, his people. He was, they were de- destroyed. He's one of the few remaining Agites. And then when Mordecai comes and does a bow and he finds out he's a Jew, man, he's enraged. He wants to take him. It's payback time. He wants to take them all out. He's second in command now. So the massacre of Israel has been issued by Haman going to Xerxes and convincing him, bribing him. And now all of Israel is planning to be wiped out by Xerxes himself, who has everything at his fingertips ready to wipe them out. Every power, every ability he needs to wipe out the Israelites. But God had promised to bless the Israelites and that they would not be wiped out. So what's going to happen here? We have the greatest king ever is going to wipe them out. But God had promised that they wouldn't be wiped out. The sovereign God, our sovereign God, has all these pieces in place for his will to be done in light of Israel. So the word was out for the genocide of of, of Israel. And all the Jews wept and Mordecai, Mordecai tore his clothes. And he sent word to Esther explaining the situation and begging her to go before Xerxes and plead with him for his people. And that's where I want to pick up uh, here. Esther chapter 4 verse 11. Esther and Mordecai are, are writing back to each other. Uh, deliver, have a messenger delivering message back, back and forth here. Because they can't be with each other. Esther is saying this to Mordecai. She says all the king's servants. In the, this is verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces. Know that if any man or woman goes to the king in Inside the inner court, without being called, there is but one law to be put to death. Except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. In other words, Esther saying, are you nuts? Like, I haven't even seen the king for 30 days. He might be moved on to another woman for all I know. I'm just, I might be old, old stuff to him. And if I walk in there and, if, and, and it's illegal for me to do that, and he will put me to death, he does, have the, he does have the right of holding up a golden scepter, but I have no guarantee of that. Moving on to verse 12. 
They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. This is Mordecai's reply. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is pointing out to Esther saying, listen Esther, we know that we're not going to be destroyed. And again, the author doesn't bring this out, he doesn't mention God at all, but we can kind of put some pieces together. God is clearly in the background here. We can put some pieces together. Mordecai is looking and saying, God's promise is not going to be wiped out. There's a chance that we might get wiped out, but as, as whole as the Jews, they will not get wiped out. But Esther, think of this. Maybe you were placed in this kingdom for such a time as this. Maybe you have a plan here. And this perks up Esther's uh, thoughts and starts thinking about, wait, what's going on here? Light bulbs start coming on. She's like, maybe I'm in place for such a time as this. And with that, it gives her the confidence then. And she tells Mordecai, this is verse 16. She says, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, day, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. When Mordecai pointed out to her that maybe this was a, there's a reason. Again, the author doesn't mention God here, but Mordecai is a a Jew. And he's thinking, maybe Esther, there is a reason. Maybe there's a purpose for you here. And with that light bulb on, it gives Esther the boldness to say, okay, I'm stepping forward. And she said, I'm going because I now, and now it makes sense. I'm going, and if I perish, I perish. But I know that I did what I was supposed to do. What a response. So on the third day, after the fasting, Esther puts on her finest clothes, walks in towards the inner chamber of Xerxes. He looks up and he sees her. And for a moment, the world stops. He's just staring at her, and then he raises his golden scepter. Just come on in. What would you like? I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What would you like? Esther ends up saving all the Jews. And God uses her in this incredible way. And there's so much more to the story than what we have time for this morning. You have to read it this week. It's amazing. There's so many plot twists and nail-biting moments. You don't want to miss it. I've just kind of given a, a broad story here. There's a lot of um, twisting parts in the middle. Like when Mordecai's life is saved by the king not being able to sleep. And so he's having his kingly blog read to him. It's amazing. You got to read it this week. I don't want to give it all away. But as I was reading the story of Esther. And I knew I was preaching on. I was asking God. I said, God, what do you, what do you want for us as a church? Like I, the book of Esther has so much. I mean, just this, I could just tell the story alone and walk away, and all of us have application right then. You know that I don't know what you're going through, but God is a sovereign God. He's putting all the pieces together. Nothing's too big for Him. Even the biggest King in the world. Um, and Esther had courage, and with courage, God can do amazing things. There's a lot of there's a lot of application here. But I was asking God, what what, what specifically do you want for us as a church? Like, what do you want uh, to challenge us as Fairlawners? And uh, God put me in a situation on Wednesday 
that I want to share with you that uh, he clearly showed me what he wanted me to challenge you with uh, this morning. So I got a call from Cat's Meow. It's where I get my t-shirts from for the youth. And uh, they said my shirts were done. So I drove to get my shirts. And I was during my lunch break. And as I was getting the shirts, I saw McDonald's across the road. And it's been a while since I've had a Big Mac. Three days. <laughs> okay, it's a little longer than that. But it seriously had been a while since I had a Big Mac. And so I decided I was going to go get myself a, a Big Mac. And as I stopped at the light crossing the road, I looked to my right, and at the BP gas station was this guy who was looking pretty rough. He had a backpack on. And he was uh, definitely looking for a ride. I, f- I felt the nudge, and I was like, I got to get back. I got a sermon to get ready, God. I got a sermon to preach. And uh, so I uh, drove on, got my Big Mac, and driving away, and I passed him again. I wave at him. Thought maybe that's what I was saying. You know, give him the smile, right? There it is, God. I did. I gave him the smile. Made his day. Got the nudge again. So I found, okay, this is, this is ridiculous. So I pull around. What am I doing not obeying God? I pull around and I pull up to him and I said, friend, would you like a ride? And, uh, well, uh, he was smoking, drinking three beers. I don't know who drinks three beers. He's drinking three beers at one time. It looks pretty rough. And he's like, well, I'd like a ride, but I don't know where I'm going. I said, east, west, you, you name the way. He said, well, I don't, I'm just trying to run away right now. I'm trying to get away. I'm trying to find a job. can't find no work. just trying to get away from life. I'm down on my luck. And I was like, well, I said, jump on in. And I went, had my Big Mac, and I was like, would you like a sandwich? And uh, he was like, no, I just ate. I said, oh, okay, great. So I put it in the back seat. As he opens my, the, back, the back door of my car and throws his big 30-pound backpack right on my Big Mac, which is okay. I was like, God, give me a good attitude here. He gets in. He's smoking. Is he mind if I drink and smoke? And I'm like, yeah. I said, do you have a gun? He said, no. I said, all right, jump in. So uh, uh, we were, I asked him, I said, I said how's life? What's, what's going on? And he said, what, how'd you get here? And we started driving away. So I, I said, I live in Apple Creek. I'll at least drive you to Apple Creek. So we're driving towards Apple Creek, and uh, he starts telling me his story. And pretty rough for him. And then in the middle of the story, he makes this comment. And he said, he said um, I'm headed straight to hell. And I was like, not if I have anything to do about it. And I, I, I said, I said well, what's going on? He started telling me about uh, all his struggles and why he's going. And all, but when he said that saying, I'm going straight to hell. And my words out of mouth was, not if I have anything to do about it. God brought this phrase to my mind. He said this. He said, for this reason, you're here. And it totally brought Esther. I was just reading Esther. And it said, for this reason, you're here. For this, for such a reason as this. For such a place as this. And so, a light bulb came off for me. And I started, like, wait a minute, God, you put me here. I wasn't going to go to Cats Meow. They called me today. And I had lunch, a free lunch. which doesn't happen very often. And I just was hungry for a Big Mac. And you know, did all these things. I'm crossing this guy's path. For a reason. So now I'm attentive. I'm perked up. Okay, God, what do you want from me? What do you want from him? I'm listening to his story. And uh, he asked me why. He said, he said why, why, are you pulling, why are you pulling me over? He said, he said uh, people, don't, people don't often pick me up. Why do you pull over and pick me up? And I said, I said, well, I'll be honest. I said, God told me to. 
He gave me this weird look, and I was like, that's, that's what happened. And he said, that's weird because he said, a lady picked me up the other day who said the exact same thing. God told her to pick me up, and she gave me a book with Psalms and Proverbs, and I was reading it, but I lost it. I said, well, I can get you the whole Bible if you want it. And he said, sure. So we drove to the church here, and I got him a Bible. And on the way over here as we were driving, uh, he was telling me about how he's like, well, you know, I've been to church before. He said a couple times. He's like, I actually was kind of attending church for a while. He said, would have considered myself a Christian. He said, but uh, I didn't feel welcome. They judged me. I, I'm a little rough around the edges. So I, I just was like, whatever with this, with this stuff. And, uh, and I left it. Um, and so I got on the Bible and I handed it to him and I said, his name is David. I said, David, I said, uh, let me tell you about Jesus. And so I explained Jesus to him. I explained how he, he had his father in heaven who loved him and created him. And he was designed with a purpose. He wasn't a mistake. And that if he would surrender his life to Christ, like, he wouldn't have to go to hell. Like, he would have eternal life. And not just, I said, God doesn't want to just save you from the hell you're going to, David. God wants to save you from the hell you're going through right now. Like, he can actually help you with your life. And uh, he said, no. So we picked up the Bible, and now we're driving out towards, uh, towards uh, Dalton there. He's like, no, I'm choosing to go to hell. I looked at him and said, you are an idiot. <laughs> I did. I, I said, you are an idiot. Now, now, when, now let, me, let, me, let me fret. When you're sharing the gospel with people, sometimes they need a, a gentle and calm, understanding spirit. And that's what God wants to channel the gospel through. Other times, they need a kick in the butt. This guy needed a kick in the butt. I said, you're an idiot. Let me explain to you what hell is. And I went through what hell is. And again, then, ended with explaining um, Jesus and how he knew what hell was. And that's why he came to save us. And I, I pulled over and I started reading John chapter 1. I said, you've got to listen to this. I talked about how Jesus came in the world. And he was rejected. But, uh, but he was the light. And anyone who chooses to follow him will have life. And he started crying. And he started saying, I, he just started crying. He told his softest heart. And I, I said, uh, David, I said, would you, would you like to accept Jesus? And, and would you like to choose to follow him? And he said, well, I can't. I said, why? He said, because, because, uh, I'm too rough. I drink beer. I'm addicted to alcohol. He said, I can't stop smoking. I can't hold a job. He said, I'm just too rough. Jesus would never accept me. And I looked at him and said, you're crazy. I said, listen. I said, how stupid would it be for me to tell you, don't mop that floor. It's dirty. I said, the whole point of mopping the floor is because it's dirty. I said, Jesus, even when he came, he said, I didn't come for the healthy people. I came for the sick. He said, if you try to clean your life up before Jesus, one thing you're never going to get to Jesus because your knife will never look good enough. But you're misunderstanding Jesus. Jesus is here to actually to clean your life up. He said, well, I don't know. So we got back on the road. Now we're driving. And we pulled in the Downton Wendy's. Um, and while we're there, uh, I said, David, what's holding you back, man? What's holding you back? I said, you, you know, I've explained, clearly explained to who Jesus is. And he's like, well, my heart is hardened. I said, why is your heart hardened? He said, because I've been... I've been uh, well, there's been deaths in my family. My son died and my father died. And he was explaining these deaths. And he's like, I'm a, I'm a heart is hard. And so I just started praying out loud. I said, all right, Jesus, would you soften David's heart? Would you help him to, uh, uh, the hardness to go away so that he could accept you? Because that's the only thing holding him back is a hard heart. And when I wasn't even done praying, he just starts praying. And he just starts telling Jesus about all his struggles and everything he's went through. He said, why, Jesus? Why, why do I sleep in bushes, is one thing he said. Why, why can't I ever find food? Why this? Why that? And then he says, but Jesus, uh, 
He said, I want you to uh, forgive me of my sin. I've messed up a lot. He said, I choose to follow you. And I'm crying at this point in time. And he's like, I, he's like, I, I choose to follow you, Jesus. And I want, I, want, I want to make you Lord of my life. And he's like, I'm going to read my Bible here. And I'm going to figure out what it means to follow you. And he's uh, praying, looked over at me. And he's like, did I do it right? And I was like, you nailed it, man. You nailed it. And uh, he's, like, he's like, well, I should probably get baptized, huh? And I said, yeah. I said, sure, you should get baptized. He's like, all right. I said, I said you ready? He said, well, well. He said, I've always kind of wanted a pastor to baptize me. I said, you're in luck. I'm a licensed pastor. I said, I'll, I'll do it for you. And uh, he's like, well, well, you got any holy water in the car? I was like, I don't believe in the holy water. Uh, and I said, I do got, and looked around, and I grabbed my root beer from McDonald's. I said, I got a root beer from McDonald's. And I was actually hoping he would say yes, because I've, I've, I've baptized a lot of people before, but never with root beer. And so I thought that'd be kind of a cool story to the root beer baptism. It has water in it. It's, it's legit. And so, uh, but he's like, no, I might get a little sticky. I was like, yeah, you probably would get a little sticky. So I told him, I said, why don't you head off down the road and, uh, when you, uh, on Sunday, once you stop in at a church, which I'm hoping, hopefully he's in church right now, once you stop in at a church, tell the pastor what happened today, and tell him that you would like to be baptized, and, and he'll baptize you. So he said, all right, so I bought him some sub- Subway, gave him a hug, and I left him to find his ride to, to wherever he was going. He didn't know where he was going, but wherever he wanted to go. And the whole time I'm talking to this guy, The difference it made for me was when God brought for such a time as this to my mind. And it suddenly clicked that that's what what we're supposed to hear this morning as fair lawners. This This is God's message for us. Is that like Esther, she was placed there for such a time as this. As fair lawn people, this is our message this morning. That you are not a mistake. You were created with a design. The things happening around you are not random. They're there for a reason. God has placed you in 2013 in this church, in this job, in this school, in this family for a reason. We look around and we, we often say there's coincidence and there's randomness and it's just we're making decisions. We're not making decisions. God's making decisions. And even if we make decisions that displease God and, and, and send us off the wrong direction, God has made it very clear that he said, if you, if you serve me, if you love me, I can take any bad situation. I can make something good out of it and use it for my purposes. I'm not, I'm not restricted to, to only one way of doing stuff. I'm a sovereign God. And no matter where you are, what you're doing, if you would just turn your ear to me and be attentive... I would use you. If you would just recognize that you are here for such a time as this, I would use you. Because when we recognize people, and I know, I know we get distracted with life, we often forget this, but when we recognize that we are here for such a time as this, we start becoming attentive to God. And we start living very intentional for the kingdom. We start recognizing that the reason your hair is the color it is, isn't by random. The reason your giftings you have isn't by random. The reason you look the way you look isn't by random. It's by design, by God who says, I've put you here for this. It gives life a totally new spin. No longer is anything dumb or worthless or, or, or uh, small. Everything has reason. No longer is a lady that's checking you out at Walmart just the random lady that the aisle you choose. God has a plan there if you choose to talk to her. 
for such a time as this. God is using you constantly and placing you. The question is, are you stepping out and are you being attentive? Are you paying attention to what His Spirit is saying? All of us here um, as part of the body of Fairlawn, it's not randomness that this group of people is together. This is God's plan with the giftings and, and the work he's done for, for a great plan, for a great work, for this, the building of his kingdom. So this week, I want to challenge you. As you cross paths with people, as you go to work, and you might think this is just a dead end, whatever. And this is just, the family I'm in is just annoying. Or this or that is just, uh. Let the light bulb come on. Remember that you've been placed in this circumstance every single day in every place you go for such a time as this. And if you're attentive to God, he will use you. And now that that co-worker that was annoying is now an opportunity to share Christ. Because you're like, wait, wait, God, we're together for some reason. How do you want me to use me? Living very intentionally. This week, remember that a sovereign God is directing your paths and, knows, and wants to know you and wants you to be part of the greatest purpose on earth, which is to make disciples and equip people in following Christ. And if you're just attentive to, your, to the Spirit, and if you recognize that you are here for such a time as this, you're going to be a part of the greatest story ever. That's the story of God. And your life will not be a waste. It'll make a huge impact. Let's pray. We love you, Jesus, very much. We know that you don't need us, but we are so grateful that you use us. Father, I pray for me and for the rest of the people in this room and those listening, God, that we would live intentional lives for you, that we would remember that you have places here for such a time as this. And you have a purpose for us. You have a plan for us whether it's delivering large groups of people, whether it's helping one person on the street, Father, whether it's encouraging a Christian or, or, or explaining you to a non-believer, Father, there's, there's a purpose here. Every teacher, every boss, every worker, every child, everybody, you have a purpose for us. So Father, I pray that this week we would be attentive and this week would would help us to kick off a habit of just being attentive to what you have for us and to recognize that for such a time as this, we are here. In your name we pray. Amen.